Amen. Thank you so much for singing that song. Um, as most of you know, I am in a sermon series on the book of First Thessalonians. And as I was preparing for the last sermon in this particular series, the one that you heard two weeks ago, I think it was on Saturday, I thought, oh, that song would have fit so well there. And I did not reach out at that point because it's, it's just not fair to expect somebody to sing a song like that with no notice at all. And so I even told Brother Corey uh, that next day, I said, sometime I want to hear Catherine sing that song. And as I was preparing for the sermon today, it, it dawned on me uh, about midweek that really... In order to start today, we need to take just a few minutes to review where we finished last time. And I want to add one thing to that, um, just for how Catherine introduced that song. If you have ever heard Dottie Rambo tell how she wrote that song, there is no doubt that God's hand of anointing was on her. She wrote it on a way to revival on a period of seven miles. The Lord gave her that entire song the words and music in its entirety in seven miles. And based on her testimony, she says it wouldn't have taken him that long if she had listened a little better. And you know, that got my attention. How many times does the Lord speak to us and we don't listen? We need to listen when the Lord speaks. But this morning we are going to be continuing with that sermon series, Sermon number seven, it is like, for some reason, my tongue today feels like it's at least twice the size that it normally is, so I don't know what's up with that, but the title of this morning's message is Like a Thief in the Night, and as we begin this morning, I do want to take just a moment and revisit the ending of the last sermon, the ending of chapter four of First Thessalonians, chapter four. And at that point, I remember telling you that you could think of that particular scripture as if Paul is handing you a bulletin, as if he is handing you an order of events for how these events are going to occur when the Lord comes back. First of all, we are going to see the Lord descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then at that point, we're going to see the people who are in the graves, the dead in Christ. Now, I want to, I want to be sure that we understand it's not everybody that's in the grave that, the, that what I'm getting ready to describe is going to happen to right at this point. It's the dead in Christ, the people who have died in Christ as true Christians. They are still in Christ and they are going to rise first, just like we just heard in that song. And then all of us who remain, those of us who are truly in Christ, then we are going up to meet Jesus, meet them in the air. And then at that moment, we shall behold him, then face to face. I wonder this morning, will you be ready when that trumpet blows? Will you be ready? Because I want to just tell you at the beginning, if you're not, it's too late. If you are not ready when that trumpet blows, there's no plan B. It is over at that point as far as your chance to go to heaven. Now, one of the things that I planned to cover in the last sermon, and I don't remember if I actually said it or not, was the com- when the Lord comes back for the Christian, for the true Christian, it's not something that we should be scared of. It is something that we should be eagerly anticipating. 
We, as Christians, we should be eagerly anticipating the coming of the Lord because we have nothing to be afraid of. We know where we will spend our eternity. But I want you to know this morning, if you are here in the sanctuary or if you are hearing my voice this morning and you are not truly in Christ, then you better be scared about the second coming of Jesus because it will end in disaster and destruction for you as we are going to see here in just a few minutes. Now, as we begin to look at this final chapter in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that Paul included some specific commands for these people to follow. And then Paul prayed for these people to walk in God's grace. He prayed for them to walk in God's grace. And I want you to know that that's a prayer that I pray for you often, that you will walk in God's grace. Now, as we prepare to look at our text this morning, I want to just share with you just a big idea for what I want you to walk away with this morning. The church is living in what could very well be the last days. The church is living in what could very well be the last days. And we should stay alert and look for all the ways that we can live for Jesus and walk in His light. We're going to see here in just a moment that Paul includes in this text today some comparison between light and darkness. Differences between walking in the light, walking in the light of Jesus Christ, and walking in darkness of the enemy. And we will get to that in just a few moments. So as we take a look at verses 1 through 3, listen to what God's Word says. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, as we look at these three verses in a chunk, we're going to be referring to these three verses as the times. Obviously, in verse 1, it it mentions that term, the times and the seasons. And I want to just say at the very beginning, it always amazes me that you will hear people say, I figured out, I have figured out when the Lord's coming back. Well, guess what? No, you haven't. No, you haven't figured it out. During my lifetime, as I shared with you last time, if I, if the Lord allows me to see my birthday in October, I will be 54 years old. And there have been a number of times in my lifetime that people have said, I figured it out. I know exactly when the Lord is coming back. Well, Scripture is very plain to say that no, they don't know when the Lord's coming back. Take a look at Matthew twenty-four thirty-six. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So the next time you hear somebody try to tell you, I know when Jesus is coming back, realize they have no idea what they're talking about. They have absolutely no idea what they are talking about. Now as we take a look at verse 1, I want you to see that Paul is still writing to these people about the coming of Jesus. He is still writing to them about the coming of Jesus Christ. However, he changes his focus a little bit here. He he goes away from telling them the precise order that things are going to occur in 
to telling them how the coming of Jesus is going to impact two different groups of people. Now, the first group of people we're going to talk about this morning are unbelievers. Unbelievers. How will the second coming of Jesus Christ affect the unbelievers? The second group of people that we're going to talk about this morning is the believers. Those people who are truly in Christ. How will the coming of the Lord impact those people? Now, sometimes people get a little bit confused or concerned about this phrase in verse 1, where Paul tells them, you have no need to have anything written to you. And maybe they wonder exactly what does this mean. But I want to point out to you, language like this is not unusual for Paul to include in his letters. In fact, if you remember uh, in verse 4 in the last sermon that I preached in this particular series, when he was writing to these people about brotherly love, he made a very, very similar statement to them at that point. And the reason he used that, he was telling them, hey, I've observed you. You've heard what I've instructed you. You are following my instruction. You're doing a great job, so keep on regarding brotherly love. So when he, when he makes this similar statement at this point, you have no need to have anything written to you, he is most likely reminding them of some teaching that they've already had. And he's just saying, hey, guys, don't forget this, but let's, let's move on at this particular point. Now, when Paul is referencing the times and seasons in this verse, he's referring to a time period and also to conditions of a particular time period regarding the Lord's return. Now, in verse 2, we see that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When we're talking about thieves, it's bad enough for a thief to come anytime, isn't it? It is bad enough for a thief to come anytime. But it seems to be worse if the thief comes at night. Just imagine if you are in your home tonight, you're asleep, it's dark, and suddenly there's a thief in your house. There's just something about that that seems worse because we weren't expecting it. We were not expecting it. It, keep, it takes us completely off guard. Paul is telling these people that when Jesus comes back, for many people, it's going to have the same impact as if he were coming as a thief in the night. Now, the imagery here is based on Luke chapter 12, verses 39 and 40, where God's Word tells us, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We've got to be ready. Sometimes I wonder, do we understand that? Do people who call themselves Christians, do they understand that we've really got to be ready? And sometimes I'm afraid that the answer is no. When we look around in our society today, people affirming things that are absolutely incorrect, that contradict the Bible, yet they call themselves Christians. It makes me wonder, do they have any idea what being a Christian really is? Folks, you cannot call yourself a Christian and support something that contradicts Scripture. You cannot do it. And I'm afraid that for many of those people, when Jesus comes back, when that trumpet blows, it's going to have the same impact on those particular people who thought they were Christians as if it were a thief coming in the night. 
So let's just face it. If a thief is going to break into your house, he's not likely to call you up and schedule an appointment, is he? He's not. So don't expect Jesus to call you up and, and schedule an appointment to ask, is it okay if I come back today? He's not going to do it. And I'm afraid that many people are going to be caught completely off guard. Let's take a look at verse 3. We see that this verse starts with, While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, when we think about peace and security, there are a lot of people that would like some peace and security today, aren't there? A lot of people are looking for peace and security. However, one of the things that I've noticed is there's many people, they are, although they're looking for peace and security, they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Maybe they're looking at it from the standpoint of, I can work really hard right now and I can retire early and I can live comfortably. Or maybe they're thinking about it, if I could just get that other job that pays more, then there will be peace and security. Maybe it's if when I can buy that new car, I'll have some peace and security. Or when I can buy that new home, that better home, I can have some peace and security. Or maybe it's after after I get the children through college, then I can have some peace and security. Now, I want to be sure that you follow me this morning. Every one of those examples that I gave, there is not one thing wrong with those things. There is not one thing wrong with working hard and being able to retire early. Not one thing wrong with that. There is not one thing wrong with buying a new car, assuming that you can afford it. There is not one thing wrong with buying a new home, assuming that you can afford it. There is not one thing wrong with looking forward to the day that your children will be out of college. But what I want you to understand this morning is if that is what you believe provides your peace and security, you're looking in the wrong places. Your source of peace and security, if you are a Christian, it comes only from Jesus Christ. And if you are looking for that peace and security anywhere else, you're looking at the wrong place and you will never find the peace and security if you are looking in the wrong place. But Paul is telling these people, while you're thinking that you've got peace and security, while you're thinking that life is as good as it can get, that is when Jesus will come again. And it will happen as fast as labor pains come to a pregnant woman. And you know, if you're a woman and you have ever been in labor, true labor, those labor pains are not likely to stop, are they? Once they have truly started. Once Jesus comes back, he's not going to change his mind. He will not change his mind now, I want to be sure that we understand this morning that the people who are caught by surprise are not going to be the Christians. It's not going to be the Christians. Again, again, we are anticipating, we are eagerly anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ. We are eagerly anticipating that. Now, as we start to take a look at verse 4, we see that he introduces the term darkness. He introduces 
the term darkness. We're going to see as we begin this section of verses that we should commit to Christ to live in his life. And our reason for doing that is as a result of all that Christ has done for us on the cross. That, that is our motivation for living a life in the light as opposed to darkness. So far today, we've been talking a lot about Christ's return and how it impacts the unbeliever. But it's completely different for people who are true believers. Now, I want to make you sure that you get this today. Remember, I said that he's beginning to introduce the concept of darkness. I want you to hear me loud and clear. Christians do not live in darkness. Christians do not live in darkness. Instead, we live in the light. Now, when we look at the Bible, darkness usually refers to the moral or spiritual blindness, to disobedience or separation. And it's exactly where the unbelieving world lives. And I want to tell you this morning, if you call yourself a Christian and you are comfortable with any degree of spiritual darkness in your lives, there's a problem, and it's a big problem. If you can tell a lie, and it doesn't bother you. If you can gossip continually, and it doesn't bother you. If you can send an inappropriate text message to someone of the opposite sex while hoping that your spouse doesn't find out about it, There's a problem. If you can be involved in any type of immoral activity and it doesn't bother you, there's a big problem, folks. There is a a huge chance that you are not saved. If you are a Christian, it doesn't mean that we will live a perfect life. But what it does mean is that we will not intentionally continue to live in sin. And if you can do that and you do not feel God's convicting power upon your heart, there's a problem. And you better be you better be discerning whether or not you are truly saved because I'm telling you this morning, the day is coming when the trumpet is going to sound. And at that point, it will be too late. Folks, our lives have got to look different from the world. We've got to show the world what a relationship with Jesus looks like. Talking about living in darkness. God's Word tells us that this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. Now, when we take a look at verse 6, it says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't go to sleep at night. That is not what God's Word is telling us. It's talking about the danger of going to sleep spiritually. Obviously, as Christians, we should be spiritually awake. And you might be wondering, so are there any warning signs? How would I know if I were beginning to go to sleep spiritually? What would that, what might that look like? Well, I've got some examples for you. First of all, if church becomes boring to you, 
you're in danger of going to sleep spiritually because let's face it, we're not here to be entertained. We are here to worship Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So if church suddenly becomes boring to us, we're in danger of going to sleep spiritually. If you notice that your prayer time is dwindling, you're in danger of going to sleep spiritually. If you notice that your Bible study time is dwindling, you are in danger of going to sleep spiritually. If you notice that you just don't seem to care about anything associated with church or Jesus as much as you used to, then you're in danger of going to sleep spiritually. And you need to wake up. In verse 7, Paul is going back to this analogy of day and night and the importance of Christians to walk in the light. And he's listing some things that are definitely of the darkness that typically occur at night. And he's just telling these people, we need to have the serious qualities of a Christian. We need to live our lives in the light. Now in verse 8, we see that Paul is returning to one of his favorite analogies. And it's armor. Armor. And he's telling us some armor that we need to have on. First of all, it's the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, if we were thinking about putting on a breastplate, if we were going, if we were preparing to go into battle, we would probably want something to protect our heart, wouldn't we? We would try to make it as difficult as possible for somebody to shoot us in the heart, wouldn't we? So we would put on some type of armor. He's telling on these people in this verse that they should put on a breastplate of faith. The breastplate of faith. As Christians, we need to have that on. As Christians, we've got to realize we're in a battle. We are in a battle directly with the enemy. We need this breastplate of faith on. The other part of this armor that he tells them to have on is a helmet. What's the helmet do? It protects your head, doesn't it? He is given an analogy here that it's important for us to protect our minds. As Christians, it is important for us to protect our minds. We've got to have on that helmet. And you know, sometimes I hear people say, you know, the enemy just doesn't bother me. The enemy just doesn't bother me. And I want to tell you this morning, if you find yourself in a situation where it's been a long time since the enemy's messed with you on something, that should raise a red flag. Because the enemy doesn't mess with people who are not threats to him. If you are not on some frequent basis receiving an attack from the enemy, there's something wrong. It's definitely not something to brag about. It's not something to brag about. We have got to have this breastplate of faith on to protect our heart and the helmet, the hope of salvation, to protect our mind. And right before we we move to the concluding portion of verses, I want to talk about the way that Paul uses this word hope here. Because it's easy to read. If you just read that particular verse, especially the ending of that verse, and you take it out of context, it, it sort of makes it look like you can't be sure of your salvation. That is not at all how Paul uses the word hope here. Paul is not using this word to even indicate the slightest possibility of uncertainty. 
In fact, when Paul uses this word here, the word hope, he is using it to indicate certainty, not the way that we typically use that word in our language today. Now, in verses 9 through 11, as we prepare to look at these final three verses in our text today, three very, very important verses. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So I want to start with this phrase, For God has not destined us for wrath. For God has not destined us for wrath. I I want you to hear today, That it is not God's desire for any of us to go to hell. That is not His desire. God, through Jesus Christ and that sacrifice that He made for us on the cross, provided a free gift to us for salvation. But you know, just because it's a free gift, it doesn't mean that everybody goes to heaven. In fact, many people will not go to heaven. Now, I want you to imagine with me just for a moment that on this stage right now is the most beautiful Christmas tree that you've ever seen. The most beautiful Christmas tree that you have ever seen in your lifetime. You imagine that it's on the stage behind me right now. And then I want you to imagine that there are many presents under the tree. And as you're getting closer to those presents, you notice I've never seen wrapping paper like that before. That is the most beautiful wrapping paper that I have ever seen in my lifetime. And then as you get a little bit closer, you say, I've never seen bows like that on presents before. And as you start getting closer and closer to the presents, you notice that they have name tags on them. And all of your names are on them. Now, from now until Jesus comes back, we could talk about how beautiful those presents are, couldn't we? We could talk about how beautifully they're wrapped, how beautiful the bows are, how beautiful the tree is. But until we actually take that present, until we actually take that gift and open it, it does us absolutely no good. No good. And I want you to just stay with me for just a moment. In a very simplistic way, God's offer of salvation works similar to that. It is a free gift that is provided through the death of Jesus on the cross. But you have got to receive that gift. Just saying that I know who Jesus is will do you no good whatsoever. You have to get to a point in your life where you realize that you're a sinner. That you have done things that are wrong in your life. You have got to be willing to repent of those, to ask Jesus to forgive you. If you ask Him, He will. He will do that. And then you've got to be willing to turn from your life of sin and to follow Him. You've got to to be willing to do those things. The process of following Jesus, of making the decision to follow Jesus, is truly as simple as we tell kids in Bible school that it is. And then verse 10, quickly. 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And I want to talk about this for just a moment. It might surprise you, but one of the questions that Brother Blake and I get often is, many times it's after the death of a loved one. Someone will ask us, where do you believe my loved one is right now? Now, most of the time, they are not asking us to tell them if we think they're in heaven or hell. That's not what they are asking most of the time. Most of the time, they want to know right this very moment, right this very moment, where do you think my loved one is? Well, I want to try to answer that with you with this particular verse right now. When we are talking about being awake or asleep, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tackle the asleep first. Because what this particular verse is talking about is those who have died in Christ. Those people who have died in Christ. I firmly believe that the moment they take their last breath on this earth, they are taking their first breath in heaven with Jesus. That's where their soul goes immediately when the Christian dies. However, we know their body's not there. We can still see their body. We bury their body. And it's being referred to in this particular verse as being asleep in Christ. So, in that, for those people, when Jesus comes back, that dead body that died in Christ is going to rise to meet with Jesus. That's what's being referred to as sleeping. And then those of us who are awake and are in Christ, it's just like the song that Miss Catherine sang a few minutes ago. We are going to be changed in a moment. We will be changed in a moment. And we will behold Him then face to face. I wonder this morning, are you ready for that? Are you sure that you are ready for that? What if Jesus were to come back right now? What if He would come back tonight? What if He would come back tomorrow? Are you ready? Remember one of the things I said at the beginning. Once that trumpet blows, it's too late. It is too late at that point to make a decision. And you can make that decision this morning. I promise you, if you're here and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that will be the most important decision of your entire life. And you do not need to put it off. Today is the day of salvation Now is the appointed time. And finally, as we close this morning, verse 11 is such an important verse. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We need encouragement. You need to be encouraged. As a Christian, you are fighting a battle daily. You need people in your life that will encourage you. If you don't have those people in your life, seek them out. Review the types of activities that you permit yourself to be involved in. It could very well be that some of the activities that you're involved in are dragging you down. But you need people in your lives that are encouragers. Those people... Now, encouragement, sometimes sometimes it involves some frank discussions... Sometimes encouragement involves addressing an issue in our lives, but then moving on past it. 
But we need people in our lives that, that can encourage us, who can challenge us to stay in the Word, to continue praying, to witness to the world around us. Because there's a lot of other people that would love to drag you down. So as Paul concluded this section of verses, I want to encourage you, just like he did, to encourage one another and to build one another up. And I think it's interesting that he ends this section with this phrase, just as you are doing. I know there are many of you that are encouragers. Thank you. Keep on. Don't ever stop. If if God's given you the gift of encouragement, use it. Use it wherever you are. But continue doing it. Don't, don't ever stop. Until that day Jesus comes home, Christians, we've got to keep our eyes on him. And we've got to press on, knowing that it could be any moment that he comes back like a thief in the night. So the invitation this morning is simple. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to come and be saved. That is a very simple statement. If you are here and you know you're not a Christian, you need to come and be saved. Jesus could come back today. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that there's some spiritual darkness that's in your life. Maybe you need to come forward and just confess that to Jesus and make the commitment that you're going to turn and follow him. Maybe there's people here this morning that just need to come and pray because you're burdened for somebody. This altar is open. I would encourage you to come. Or perhaps there's people here that are, that are interested in uniting with this church. If that's the case, I would encourage you to come as well. Whatever your need is, I want you to know that the altar is open. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for this time that we've had together to look at your word. Father, I pray now that you will just move in a mighty way. I pray that your Holy Spirit will descend upon this place. I pray that people will make the decision to follow you as their Lord and Savior. And Father, I pray that this will just be the day that we will see, that our eyes will be able to see you save someone in this place. And Father, for all that you'll do, we'll give you the praise, honor, and glory for it all. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.